The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, Editor-in-Chief at Provoke Media. I'm here in London and I'm very happy to be joined by Jessica Hope, who's the founder and CEO of the PR firm Wimbart. Jessica, it's been a while since we last had you on the podcast. How are you? Uh, It's been ages. Thank you very much for having me on again. Um, It's amazing having a a repeat performance. Thank you very much for having me, everyone. So it was like three years ago, I think, when you came on? About that, yeah. And we were just so amazed at your firm because it's kind of, it's it's all black and people of colour and it focuses specifically on African tech. Um, There aren't, I don't believe many other PR firms We're like niche, yours. very niche, I would say, yes. Yeah, so how have the last three years been for you? They've been brilliant and brutal, but I think mm-hmm. all agencies of all sizes will say that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember very clearly last time we spoke, I remember saying uh, we were at an inflection point and we were struggling to scale. Mm-hmm. I think maybe then there was nine or ten of yeah, us. that's right. Uh, as of Monday, there's 26 of us. Wow, so, so almost tripled. <laughs> Yeah, we have tripled um, and we scaled Uh, and it has been hard work, but exciting. Yeah. And how much of that is down to kind of you and your team figuring out your model and how much of it is just down to the African tech market growing? I would probably say, you know, lucky in terms of 40 percent, the African tech market has grown. Mm-hmm. So last year, uh, one of the big VCs that operates in the African continent, uh, Partech Ventures, they did a report that said um, African tech um, raised, I think, $5.7 billion last year. Wow. Okay. Uh, Wimbart did $970 million worth of announcements. Wow, look at you. <laughs> so we've kind of, you can track our growth You're with the like, African tech that's space. That's like 15% mm-hmm. of the So market. almost a billion dollars worth of fundraise announcements, yeah. as well as our day-to-day retained clients and everything as well. Yeah. So we definitely had a sort of a beautiful year in terms of we were there. We had the infrastructure to be able to support a lot more companies and helping them announce their fundraise announcements. We worked with a few unicorns as well. So mm. that helped to increase that figure so I think a lot of it was luck in terms of we were just ideally positioned with the African tech market Mm -hmm. but on top of that I think it was just real grit and determination from the entire team Mm -hmm. in terms of we need to be really intentional about growing and you know putting ourselves forward for bigger and um, more nuanced jobs Mm. and why is the African tech market growing what's powering that growth I think it's a case of probably the Western technology market is maybe oversaturated and the valuations were huge. Mm. And we've seen in the news recently, a lot of the valuations were just fraudulent mm. uh, in terms of, you know, the things that some of the Western companies were doing mm-hmm. to, you know, raise 60 million Series A or something ridiculous mm. like that. Sure. But I think also a lot of investors started looking at the opportunities on the continent as well. Mm. Um, I think... 
a lot of African companies were getting more press, not just from Wimbart, but just generally the, mm -hmm. the market was growing uh, and there was more visibility on the scale and the opportunity on the continent as well. So more money is going into the continent. And of course, with that, you need more services to support that, whether or not it's PR, marketing. You know, we've seen a lot of legal and other professional services grow alongside us as well. Mm. Have you seen any softening in terms of African tech? I mean, obviously, we've seen a slowdown with the, the Western tech companies, you know, whether it's Amazon or whoever. Is that impacting technology companies in Africa? 100%, yes. It's mm -hmm. definitely been a much slower start to the year for us, mm -hmm. uh, especially in terms of fundraise announcements. So we've, you know, like a lot of agencies, we have two sides of the two sides of the business. We have our retainers, and then we were doing one-off projects, fundraise announcements. Mm. I would say uh, last year, I think October, we were doing, say, four or five fundraise announcements. At the moment, it's like one or none. Right. Okay. Um, it, so we have seen a... Yeah. definite change in the market there but then interestingly mm -hmm. we've seen some of the larger companies that are maturing they're doubling down on pr uh, they're retaining pr in terms of making sure that they're present in their markets as well mm -hmm. um so we've lost some of the fundraise announcements some of the smaller bits of work uh, but we've actually stayed relatively stable touchwood so far as well mm, that's good to hear um i'm curious to know what the kind of PR issues you face are when when representing African tech companies um, you know one of the things is is it fair to, to always refer to it as African tech because you know Africa's a big place and it can cover so many things now presumably is that an issue you kind of run up against where you're trying to perhaps sell it sell it into an audience outside that region it is tricky. Uh, I think as with all PRs, when we're selling in a story, we've got to make sure we answer that so what question for a journalist as mm -hmm. well. So it's, I guess we need more storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, often, again, the fundraise numbers are relatively small. So, okay, 5.7 billion for an entire continent actually isn't that much, really. It was a mm -hmm. record year for African tech. But considering, you know, there's a billion plus people on the continent, it's mm -hmm. minuscule, really again, but then there's that opportunity for growth too. Mm. Um, but in terms of African tech, you know, we have very specific targets. We do very much B2B corporate markets as well. Right. So we have quite defined audiences mm. that we're trying to target on behalf of our clients. Um, but I think that the market is maturing as well. And last year we saw more crisis communications mm -hmm. um, required for the sector as well. Mm. So as with all ecosystems, as they evolve and they scale, you know, everything's kind of happy days to start with. You're like, oh, this founder's done this or this founder's done that or they've raised this amount of money. But actually, as all companies scale, there's often problems and there's fallouts as yeah, well. Right. So we actually did a lot more crisis communications last year to help mm -hmm. mitigate some of the issues, some of the fallouts, some of the scandals as well. Mm -hmm. So it's natural. No company is ever going to have perfect PR all day, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we've seen a shift in the market in that respect. But the the market African tech PR market is definitely different to others as well, and I mm -hmm. don't think it's a disservice to refer to it like that. It's mm -hmm. it's still very niche, it's still very nuanced, and it's small. It is yeah. still very small as well, and it's it's an opportunity for us. Yeah. Um. But we're not we're not battling as hard as what we were sort of ten years ago. Right. In terms of trying to get visibility in front of journalists. Right. And in terms of the companies themselves, you work with with many that are early stage, for example. How do you see their kind of comms requirements their their comms functions evolving so interestingly we get involved with a lot of our clients and helping them to um attract talent mm -hmm. um but okay. also we help appoint people internally as well and obviously it suits us to make sure that we're working with amazing internal 
comms professionals too. But I think more and more companies are seeing a real need to have a solid comms function. Uh, and what we find, again, because we work with relatively small companies, is that they often appoint people that will complement Wimbart's services as well. Yeah. So it might not be a PR person, but it might be a marketing person that we can work collaboratively with as well. Mm. And that marketing person might do internal comms, or if they can't, we will help them with that too. We've also started helping a number of our startups with investor communications too, mm -hmm. which again is a growing need, a growing requi requirement that hasn't really existed to, to date either. So we try and provide products and services that don't exist uh, as well as, you know, support some of the startups. Um, we try not to be a jack of all trades, but we also try and jump in and help where we can with some of the startups because they are early stage as well. Yeah. So you kind of end up doing a lot for them, basically. Do you know what we do do a lot? <laughs> I have to say people who have, you know, left Wimbart and they've moved on, then they work for bigger, more corporate clients as well. Mm. You'd think that that would be more stressful, but it's not because they have more structure. Yeah. And you kind of have your KPIs and that's it. Whereas with us, with our startups, um, we get emotionally involved with a lot yeah, of our clients, right. yeah. a lot of the founders as well. A lot of the clients that we have are my, through my personal network. So we always try and go above and beyond, but it actually is quite exhausting as well. Yeah, I, I can imagine. But it, it almost becomes like a family kind of relationship. It is. And it's, yeah. you know, as with all family relationships, they can become strained, but then yeah. they can also, we also <laughs> like celebrate together as well. Um, sure. And we, you know, we do treat our clients like like family as well. Yeah. What do you think Western tech companies can learn from Africa, if, if at all? I think it's probably adaptability. Mm. Um, one of our clients produced a really interesting piece of software and they rolled it out with telcos, marketing software, I think 2015. Mm -hmm. And then we saw a news story in 2023 that the big European telcos are going to introduce this piece of software. Right. So we've actually been working on a PR campaign with that client saying... Africa was doing it in 2015. Yeah. Um, wow. So there is actually a lot of innovation through necessity and especially mobile innovation yeah. because okay. basically um, the desktop computer, the laptop, was they use the term leapfrogged, which is kind of arch archaic now, mm. but it's mobile for second and third. Most people have yeah. at, le at least two mobile phones <laughs> as well. Yeah. So I think innovation is really important. Um, but also a lot of, I would say, a lot of the tech companies and the engineers have to build products for feature phones and smartphones as well. So they, the, even the engineering talent has to be very nimble. Yeah, sure. And what about from a PR perspective? Do you think there are lessons for Western PR firms from Africa? In some ways, yes, but I think a lot of it is probably, I think a lot of, um, you know, companies, like, even like Wimbart, we probably still have to learn some of the structure of how Western companies do PR as well, maybe be more disciplined with some of our clients, mm -hmm. um, think about other, how we monetize our services even more than we, than we do now. Mm. But I think also Western companies, PR companies that I've seen have tried to move into the African space are not adapting to how Nigerians or Kenyans or South Africans or Egyptians mm. do business as well. Yeah. So, for example, the Wimbarts, we automatically go on WhatsApp to speak to people. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we don't see it as an invasion of journalist pri um, privacy. Yeah. Whereas I think if someone here in the UK decides to just WhatsApp randomly someone from the Times, yeah. that person from the Times will probably be on Twitter saying, oh, my Twitter. God, there's journalists. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. So we have to adapt. And it's actually quite exhausting then because you're always what's happening it's this constant flow of communications and building those relationships in a different way. But we have to speak to people in a, on a platform that they're used to. Yeah. So I think it's about being adapt, you know, being able to adapt, being nimble, mm -hmm. 
and not assuming anything as well. Mm. You have to, you do have to, the rules of engagement are different when it comes to doing PR. And I wouldn't just say in Africa, but the rules of engagement Between, are different to Nigeria, yeah. to Kenya, to South Africa. We've done a lot of work in Egypt and Morocco in the last mm. couple of years as well. And we've had to even change the ways of how we operate yeah. in order to accommodate those clients and the cultural differences. Yeah, so you've got 26 people. Are they all here in London? Yes. Right, do you, you don't have any officers or people in Africa not yet do you no. think that would change at any point it could do but mm. I think it would be the case that someone from my London team would move to the mm. continent as well because it's such a relationship business and again it's not just a Wimbart thing it's most PR agencies yeah um but our, our, we pride ourselves and our brand and the way we work and the way we operate mm. I think we're quite different to how we do things compared to western PR agencies mm -hmm. but then when we've interacted with PR agencies in Kenya and Nigeria and Ghana we also operate differently to them too. Mm -hmm. um, right. So yeah. we're operating in a kind of weird hybrid space. So it'd be very mm. difficult, I think, to just pluck someone and expect them to be able to roll out the Wimbart way of doing things mm -hmm. without spending a lot of time with us as well. Yeah. Um, we also work with a lot of founders and entrepreneurs who are international. Mm -hmm. So they're working from New York, they're working from yeah. London. So we kind of see people at some point anyway. Um, I think probably 60% of my team are from Nigeria. <laughs> so they have contacts on the ground. You know, someone who works for us used to be uh, the deputy uh, news editor for one of the biggest newspapers in Nigeria. Mm. So they have their contacts. So we're kind of on the ground, but just via WhatsApp. Yeah. Africa's often been overlooked, I think, when it comes to multinational corporations in terms of their PR strategies. Is often the, the plan comes out of head office in America and then it's kind of okay let's just maybe translate this at best do you see that changing at all I would love it to the mm. optimist in me would love that to happen uh, the international companies that we've worked with it's an education process mm -hmm. because a lot of us uh, some of them come into the continent and they just think you can roll out a press release from HQ and all Nigerian or Kenyan or South African or Ghanaian or Tanzanian journalists are going to write about it. Mm. But if the content doesn't involve any of those countries, then why would those journalists write about it? There's a, yeah. A weird elitist vibe that yeah. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, no. but we I can't imagine where it comes from. <laughs> Uh, believe me, Arun, when I tell you, we managed to squash it out of them pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. Um, so I think, you know, with one of our clients, we sent out a couple of press releases that had no mention of Africa. And guess what? We got oh, wow. zero coverage. Yeah. So we were quite persistent and quite belligerent and saying, look, let's get some Africa data. Let's do this. Let's do that. In fact, let's get Kenya. Let's mm. get Nigeria. Let's get South Africa and segment it. And then guess what? We started getting coverage for our clients. It's an international client and they didn't even have a footprint on the continent other than the PR. And we were actually getting more coverage than um, the other PR agencies in other regions where they did have people on the ground. Oh, wow. So it takes a little while to help educate these like big multinationals in terms of saying just because you're a global brand, like why should Africa care? Mm -hmm. yeah. So what we're doing is we help them kind of like narrow down that story. And it doesn't mean you have to go completely off brand or off message, but you actually just can't, you can't patronize African journalists by expecting them to run everything just because you're well known in like Peru or Mexico or Australia or Estonia or wherever as well. Yeah, well, I'm both encouraged and also a, a, bit, a bit discouraged by that answer because it, it is a shame, I think, to, to hear that multinationals are still, you know, 
still kind of rolling out the same tactics that they were 20 or 30 years ago. But firms like yours are leading the change. Um, one of the things we talked about when we were on the pod three years ago was about how Wimbart, you'd kind of created it and it had kind of become a safe space for people in this industry, in particular black people in industry. Do you still see it the same way? Yes. Um, mm. And I would widen that out to people of color. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so it's really important that people are seen as Jamaican, mm. uh, Ghanaian, Nigerian. Uh, yeah. We have an Indian woman working for us as well. It's a place where you can come and you can kind of celebrate your culture. You aren't just a black person. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of building tolerance uh, and accepting and celebrating, you know, mm -hmm. different ways of life, different cultures as well. Yeah. Uh, it's it's important to us. I think I'm less explicit about it mm -hmm. now when you know we onboard people because it's just kind of pretty obvious as well. Yeah. Uh, and the amount of people who come in even at interview stage and you say, oh, you know, what attracted you to Wimbart? And they say, yeah. lovely idea of working with Nish. And they just say, I'm quite happy to work somewhere where I see people like me. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I think I probably said to you last time, you know, people like me and Maria, who's um, you know, been with me at Wimbart from day one. We've been in our bubble for a really long time now, so we forget what it's like outside. Yeah, right. Um, so we want it to be a safe space, but for all cultures, all genders, you know, and we were speaking earlier and I said, you know, Wimbart is a, is a weird place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd like to think in a, in a good way, mm -hmm. but you know, it's currently 100% BME mm -hmm. uh, and the senior team is, um, all female, mm. which so we go 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 against the grain when it comes to Very the much. industry, and, and unapo we're unapologetic about it. Yeah, and and you know, look, it's not your job to you know, help the industry with this challenge necessarily. But how do you view broader progress on DEI and PR industry since we last spoke? Again, I'm wondering if I'm the right person to answer that because I think I'm also in another bubble. So when mm -hmm. I look outside, I really only surround myself by allies right. and other yeah. people who are tuned in to say the BME PR pros program, yeah. exec, uh, the exec, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. So it's tricky for me to really understand. I'm not gonna pretend and say, oh, everything's great now. I'm, I'm sure it is still a struggle. Mm -hmm. And I do still get people who are interview stage at every level from account executive to you know account director. Mm complaining about um, PR being too white, mm -hmm. too male, too stale. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not people say that at interview stage, just because, or if it's the truth, I'm, in my head, I think it's the truth. Yeah, but I, I don't know, I don't have enough reference points, so I don't want to make any, I don't want to make any sweeping statements. I just know what, what we do is that we're just happy growing as we are. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting. Um, a couple of years ago, I had to kind of uh, second a piece of work out to an older white guy. Mm -hmm. And he was useless. And um, he turned around and he said to Maria, well, didn't Jessica make notes? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. you're supposed to be reporting into me. <laughs> I realized I hadn't worked with an old white guy for a really long time. And I responded quite badly to it because I just wasn't used to be being treated like that. Yeah, uh, I saw it as a microaggression. Mm. Um, but as I say, I'm in my bubble, so I don't have to deal with that very often. It sounds like a nice bubble to be in. Well, I'm, I've curated it myself. You have. <laughs> um, but I also am uh, cognizant of the fact that I need to look beyond that bubble as well. Sure. And what does that mean? Um, so we've like we've had some um, 
we've had some white guys work at Wimba and they were amazing and they like absorbed into the company culture and it did was great. Did you get them on the playlist, the office playlist? <laughs> yeah, we did. Right. Um, and, but they knew, they knew the environment they were coming into. Mm, yeah. So it wasn't sure. a problem. Um, yeah. And it was a safe space for them. Uh, and we had one guy and he was just like a real history nerd and he took us on a walking history of London. But there's lots of people who joined Wimba and, um, you know, they've moved from Nigeria um, and they they loved it. They loved the history. Loved, they loved learning about everything. And we found different ways of bonding as well. And you just think it can't be that diff- difficult for different yeah. cultures to bond and work together and get along. I think we have more in common, right? Surely. <laughs> You'd hope so. Um, and, and on the Office playlist, because I know we talked yeah. about this last <laughs> time, is it still, still the best in London, do you of think? Course, yeah. without a doubt. But yeah. we're competitive. Yeah, it's, it's still heavily, heavily competitive internally, right? Always. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, maybe you should share it at some point. We we, we can, should uh, do actually. Um, yeah. We have a summer party coming up, so we're already um, <laughs> getting competitive about that, and yeah. we have competitions for our summer party. But again, it's that bonding thing, mm. um, you know. And it, it goes back to where we had someone from DRC work for Wimba, so we had a Congo-based playlist. Mm. Okay. Right. It's just experimenting, being open to just trying new things. You, you don't sound convinced. No, I enjoyed it. It was <laughs> okay. great. I was like, oh, I just can't dance like Congolese. Like, they're amazing. Um, but it, it's more a case of just being open to it. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great advice for all of us. So, uh, Jessica, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully it won't be another three years. Hopefully not. Until, thank you so much. Until we speak again. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Irene. Joined by the two owners of CC Group, which is Provoke Media's EMEA Tech Agency of the Year for 2023. We've got the CEO, Richard Fogg. We've got the COO, Paul Nolan. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Rich, you've been on before. Uh, Paul, Rich doesn't let you out, I believe, <laughs> very often. You haven't been on before, so welcome. No, it's my debut. Yeah, well, it's good to see you. Thank you. Um, it's been quite a journey for you guys. At CC Group, and I wanted to talk about that because when I first met Rich, we're going back 15 years now, yeah, easy. and I don't think it's overstating it to say that CC Group was was just kind of one of many tech agencies True. in the country, mm-hmm. um, and now you've won EMEA Tech Agency of the Year twice in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did you go from that, from being one of many, to being one of the best? And well, that's quite a big question. There's probably that's, many, that's many very, things along the way, but that's what I'm quite curious to understand. Very, very nice of you to say. Um, well, it's a, it's a long story that will condense. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, look, I, I sort of rocked up. I'm, tomorrow I hit the 24th year of my internship um, mm-hmm. at CC Group. So I've only ever worked at one company. Um, and then fast forward, God knows how many years, um, I was off to go backpacking around the world when we got married. So like an extended honeymoon, they didn't think I'd be coming back. Um, and they brought in Paul Nolan, um, to potentially replace me. Um, long story short. I think it's still a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll, we'll plan on that. Uh, we'll plan on that. Um, so I came back from traveling first day back at the office, Paul and I were taken aside, um, by our boss at the time, Kevin Taylor. 
um, who basically told us that we were now responsible for running the telecoms division of uh, CC Group, which was kind of the crown jewels um, mm. of the uh, the organisation. It's certainly what we were best known for. Mm. Um, We'd actually met before as well, hadn't we? We before had. Before I joined the company, and we had a mutual friend that I went to school with. Ian, if you're listening, thank you. Um, he, I'm sure he's a regular listener. Sure <laughs> we, um, we met at a darkness gig. Remember those guys? Yes, yeah? It was great. It was, a, it was a Christmas gig, wasn't it? Yeah, and we just, what a we just time. went on a whim because how do you, you just don't turn down the darkness, right? Yeah. Especially in the early 2000s. And yeah, met there, got on really well. And then I was kind of looking for a job at the time, really. Um, and one thing kind of led to another. Ian facilitated an interview, met a few of the guys, and then I, I joined. And then I later found out that I was Rich's replacement. Mm-hmm. Um Although you, you did kind of hint at the fact that you were you know just got married and looking to do something different yeah. in terms of a trip, so yeah, it was uh, mm. it, so you, it's just kind of like funny how just things just kind of work out. You know, yeah. I wasn't expecting him to come back, but um, I was pleased he did actually because uh, <laughs> always yeah. enjoyed working with him. So you're running the the telecoms yep. practice, which is the biggest practice at CC Group. I, it was. Or, Yes, it known. probably was actually probably the best known. I'm yeah. not entirely sure it was the biggest, but I remember our first year target was four hundred thousand pounds, which sort of you know if that which now was, you wouldn't get one of the biggest. That, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not nowadays, or not yeah. nowadays. No, um, but it's funny, sort of like how how motivating a large number on your back um, can be. So we sort of went about and did what we did, and sort of grew the stream, and then took over the rest of sort of like the technology um, mm-hmm. part of the business. Um, had a guy, um, given mentor, uh, a guy called Neil Backwith, who you had mm-hmm. on the pod many nice. years ago. Yeah, also around 10 years ago, I yeah, think. Yeah, uh, probably about, yeah. about that time. Um, and I didn't realise at the time, but we'd basically, we'd had our first board meeting where we presented sort of the plan for telecoms going forward. And our chairman, who's still with us, a guy called Tim Trotter, apparently turned to the rest of the board after we walked out and said, that's your future management team. Mm. Um, they'll be they'll running this they'll run this company one day. The problem was my uh, my dad had run his own business. It hadn't gone especially well, and I grew up in a house where you were very aware of how difficult it can be actually running a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so Neil was basically employed to help me believe that in time I could uh, I could could own a business. And we sort of got to about 2008ish. We we're a bit disillusioned. It wasn't you know we we're a Thames Valley agency about. 1.8 million in oh, revenue. I forgot you weren't in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. forgot that yeah. whole thing. I know, I know. It's like, I'll meet you, but I'm not coming out there. Yeah. No, it's fine. Please don't come Why to Why are we meeting in Paddington? <laughs> yeah. well, so 15 years ago, we were mm. still based in yeah. Reading, yeah. And I, I used to recall, I think it was you that said to me that I'm I'm competing with a postcode yep. when it comes to talent. That must have been a huge challenge it was, for you. It was ridiculous. Um, so long story short, we, we basically... Um, made a play to take over the company mm-hmm. um so it was fine it was a lovely lifestyle business but it was bumping along 1.8 million low single digits uh, margin 27 people based in the thames valley it just didn't have much energy and drive behind it and mm-hmm. i think we were a little bit sort of fed up yeah it did. i mean it had a good it had a good name and a good reputation in certain parts of the technology industry for sure right so it's not so we, we, were, we were inheriting you know a lot of value as far as the brand was concerned but you know um Rich is right, and it's not that we didn't have great people in the agency. We did. We had loads of good people. The problem is that they all had aspirations of wanting to go to London, and all the people that were coming out of the universities wanted to go to London. And the ability to scale at the pace we wanted to was restricted by the fact we were based in Reading. And yeah, that was okay. the key reason why we started our, a London operation. Shift up to yeah. shift up so to you London. Start London operation. Yeah, yeah. But that's not easy. 
Uh, no, we kissed a few frogs. Um, mm. Wouldn't recommend sharing with a design agency because apparently they never talk to clients, so you can listen to music at whatever volume <laughs> you want. Um, bounced around London for quite a long time, actually. Yeah. Been in um, King's Cross for about. It was always seven a years different now. office. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that. It was for it was for a bit. Uh, I don't think I ever invited anyone to the Great Portland Street office with the bars on the uh, on the on the windows. That wasn't that wasn't fun. Mm. Um, I don't think we won a single bit of new business when we were in the office. Not when we, we were pitching no. it in that office. Exactly. No, we had to basically go elsewhere to pitch the business in order to win it. Um, but yeah, one of those things. And we sort of got to that point where. You know, um, a few years later, we were in a merger situation um, with an agency. It would have been, you know, it would have been, I think it was 2011, 2012. Mm. It would have been great, right? We'd have been probably the size we are now, mm. um, a, an awful lot faster. Um, I was going to be the CEO. Paul would have had a really good job. And I went to lunch one day. All the due deal was completed. We'd met investors, mm. all that kind of stuff. And I went to lunch one day with the owner and the number two of the other business. And before starters arrived, the number two said, right, we're going to write the names down of all of our people. We're going to rate them A, B, and C. And on day one, we're going to fire all the Cs. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. I called Paul in a panic, I think it's fair to say, and said, we, we can't let this happen. We mm -hmm. can't let this happen. So we decided in a sort of moment that I will forever describe... Um, as, as sort of career Tourette's, mm -hmm. uh, we said, we'll buy it. Uh. Like, small problem, um, no money, uh, no equity in our houses, no rich relatives, um, and so that became a little bit difficult. But, you, but there was a majority shareholder who wanted to sell? Yes, so the right. reason why the um, merger was happening was that both owners of yeah. each agency wanted an out, yes, and it I, was easier I, to... Are we not going to name the other agency? No, Is that no not, not for now. No, okay. no not right. for now. Um, they don't exist anymore. They have been acquired, um, yeah. but still. Um, so, yeah, long story short, um, our um, chairman went off and spoke to banks and mm -hmm. private equity houses, and the banks wanted too much money in order to lend us the money. The yeah. private equity um, companies wanted too much control, um, which we weren't ready to relinquish um, back then. And so we ended up stitching together a deal a year later, which was sort of based on a sweep of cash out of the business, um, a payment every month for five years, an additional what's called a deferred consideration of profit up to a certain value. And um, we were all done and dusted sort of five, six years uh, after that. But that's, um, so that was 2013 when you, because I remember that, the MBO story. Yeah. But it wasn't until 2018 that you had full ownership. Um, Is that right? Yeah, about that. Yeah, about 2018, that. 2019. Because we did, we lost our, I lost our nerve. Um, at the last minute and we ended up doing a deal for 80% rather than 100%. So okay. then once we'd done the MBO, like we still had to buy the additional 20% now. So. And was that difficult, that period, that kind of five to six year period where you're going from from not owning the business to owning all of it, but at the same time, so you're making all these payments, but at the same time you're trying to define the agency, build a new brand, new culture in a very competitive marketplace yeah. um well when you put it like that um <laughs> i don't know i mean i don't remember you don't remember well, it all. Like, obviously, <laughs> obviously remember it. It. what i was going to say is i don't remember feeling wildly like worried about anything yeah. or i didn't feel like it was a i didn't think it was, i didn't feel like it was a massive step because there was so much of the job that we were doing already right i mean it's the yeah. business that we kind of helped build 
um, in, in in areas of technology that we knew very well. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we were obviously a big part of growing you know, the, the the expertise in the business at the time. And all of the enormity that surrounds the your owners now, not just an employee, was kind of a little bit lost because there was so much of day to day that was so familiar. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the the owner was still around and still helping out for the first few years. Um, we still had the same kind of advisors in place. We had the same colleagues in place, and uh, we were all kind of putting in the same direction. I think the only difference is I think that. Rich and I probably had that that, that extra level of uh, decision making that we perhaps didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but most yeah. of the big decisions had been taken because yeah. we were in a process that was going to last a defined right. period of time. We knew who was owed what money at what point, and we were just we just got our heads down and just made sure yeah. that we delivered. Right. I think the most painful bit was um, part of the deal was no pay rises, no bonuses, and no dividends until you basically paid your bills. Wow. Um, which yeah. makes sense, right? Yeah, that sure. It makes it makes perfect sense. So that was probably the most painful bit. Um, yeah. but it, was it was towards the end of the process, definitely. Yeah. yeah, but then it was sort of like the emergence from that into like, right, okay, now now we own this thing. Mm. Um, margins good, but we're not growing at the rate that we that we need to. Mm. Um, and so that was really the the almost the starting line. We mm. we tried some different things and yeah. had relative were, levels of success. There was a sort of up and down quality, I thought, with CC Group during that kind of period where you yeah, had a really good year. And then you'd have a year that wasn't so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the last few years have We've, been yeah. really kind of sustained. Is, it, is there a, is is there a reason for that sort of difference? Um, there's there's a few. Um, I think so. Number one, and I hate this advice, but it's it's good advice nonetheless. Have a plan. Mm. Have an actual strategic plan that you've talked through and you've written down and you're committed to and you measure and you execute and you hold yourself to account for. And we'd sort of had the loose bindings of a strategic plan that as soon as it was written was kind of discarded Mm. and sort of... As we as we sort of left the early stages of the MBO into the latter stages of the MBO, we become a lo- became a lot more intentional um, about that. We also started to sort of scale up um, the offer and the capabilities within the organisation. So bringing on someone to run marketing, so it wasn't mm. sort of like an evenings and weekends job um, as it often is when you run a smaller agency. Really pinning down the positioning and the proposition so that you really know who you are and what you're selling because it's really mm. hard to differentiate a tech agency mm. because to the outside world we all deal with acronyms and bits and bytes and flashing lights um, but actually when you really dive into it there's a lot of niches within technology yeah. and so if you look at CC Group now it's not a B2B tech agency it's a telecoms agency and a fintech agency and a cyber tech agency and enterprise tech and deep tech and yada 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 so you you have to really focus down on those areas. And we've sort of, uh, literally around the time of the buyout, we'd started um, investing in a load of research um, to try and un- understand the buying behaviours of our clients' customers. So trying to actually add some empirical evidence to the work that we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've invested, I mean, that's been running a decade now, we must have invested hundreds of thousands of pounds in hard costs and soft costs in terms of bringing that up to date. And it right. gives us a point of differentiation that is moves from that competitive advantage to core competence, if you know what I mean. Like it's so ingrained and it's so inbaked. It gives us a really strong proposition and point of differentiation, especially in pictures and things like that. And then but you don't sell it. 
We don't sell it, no, no. It's, um, we use a lot of it in our marketing. Um, and we use an awful lot of it in our pitch processes and when we're planning campaign strategies and stuff like that. And then you sort of take the insights bit and you combine it with the sector knowledge and expertise, you know. Anais, who runs our telecoms division, if I if we gave her enough time and money, could probably go and build a telecoms network. Dan could do the same with a bank. Um, so yeah. could Alex, yada, yada. So there's a real depth of knowledge there. And, and that sort of insight-driven... Um, positioning is sort of what's really helped us sort of differentiate. Done a lot on culture as well. Mm. Um, so mental health was really the first thing that we dove into that was sort of uncomfortable. And um, Katie DeCosa, who's now a director, has been sort of like absolutely phenomenal in bringing that to us. And I think the the, the mental health conversations that we have now are just totally different level. Mm. Um, we run a um, a, we're part of a group of agencies that runs State of Us, which is a, like a mental health network. Um, and it's really interesting how a lot of CC groupies will stand on stage and happily talk about sort of, you know, issues they've experienced and other people are quite sort of taken aback by how open and honest we are about it. But that's sort of become part of the culture, really, and certainly protected us when we went into the COVID times, mm -hmm. for sure. You've been very deliberate also in terms of Diversity and inclusion. Yep. You're now, um, what's your blueprint status? We are fully blueprinted. You're fully January, blueprinted. Yeah. And there's not Never. many of those firms around. Um, and, you know, you're run by two white blokes. Yeah. So what happened there? I mean, what, what sparked it? And, and how difficult has that been in terms of a transformation? And I'm also curious to hear any advice you have for other agencies. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the starting gun, if you like, was um, the Provoke Amir uh, conference. Um, and Elizabeth Bananuka has mm, kept yeah. the tweet um, yeah. where I was like, holy crap, I really, you know, as a white guy in comms, we talked about it in the past a bit. And I was like, oh, yeah, but our clients don't look like that. Mm. You know, the classic, well, there's no pipeline, blah, mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff that you, yeah. I now know is totally ridiculous. Um, so literally the day after that event, I sat down and wrote a diversity strategy, which is now, I mean, it's vomit-inducingly poor um, in every in every possible way. Um, but and I really thought my first my first major hurdle would be getting that through the board, which at the time was entirely white and male, I think. Mm. Um, but actually. There was there was a lot of openness um, to that. Mm. Then finally, sort of, you know, um, we started to figure out exactly what we needed to do. And really, it's the blueprint that sort of took us from well-intentioned and well-meaning into, oh, right, there's some structure around this. And that's what I couldn't figure out and we couldn't figure out. It's like, well, it's all very well mm. to sit here and moan yeah. and sort of say, well, there's no pipeline. Well, we'll have to go and see, do some school visits. Yeah, like listening to me talk about PR for 45 minutes is going to suddenly inspire a group of people that don't look like me. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. No, I remember, I think, going back to what you, you, you asked, Irene, it's the, I think the, the murder of George Floyd was the big kind of like moment where yeah. everybody kind of thought, this you know shit something's really got to stop now mm -hmm. um things have got to change um and i think it was it was obviously part of that time when we're all a captive audience because of the lockdown period mm. and covid and uh there was a massive outcry from the entire world but also an outcry from all of the guys within the company as well um and we talked about it debated it obviously listened to um you know listen to how people were feeling about it and I think that helped us kind of throw a little bit more um, light on what we were doing as a business, how we were behaving, 
you know, what our strategy was to encourage greater diversity moving forwards. And I think that was the that was the, the, the incident that really energised everything that we did in, in terms of driving diversity and inclusion forward. And that culminated with, you know, Rich, obviously, and, and Katie and other members of the business, um, you know, talking um, with Elizabeth and doing more things with her collectively, training programmes. And we always had the aspiration that we would be blueprinted one day. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we... We, we we achieved ally status first, which was a massive, um, which was a, which was a great result, and uh, yeah, the the full blueprint status was you know, a matter of months ago, and it was one of the, I think, greatest achievements that we've had as a business, <laughs> yeah, yeah. frankly. And mm. we've had we've won a lot of awards, mm. um, but um, I think that the one that we're probably most proud of is is the blueprint, for yeah, sure, as yeah. you should be. Um, what's your advice for other firms that because I think many firms are struggling with this down literally get the um, application form for the blueprint okay but it, that, it, it that, is yeah. that there is so much in there mm. um, that okay, you can right. that you can learn from it gives you the sure. structure it gives you the criteria it. It, it really yeah. does so we mm. literally we were I mean we weren't sort of manifest and blurred in terms mm. of we weren't sort of in the sort of pre-release cohort yeah. um, but I sort of swaggered onto the blueprint website downloaded the form went Oh, <laughs> we we thought we were quite good. We are nowhere near good enough. Mm. Um, so we we delayed it six months because there's two intakes every year. Yeah, but we've done loads of stuff. Everything from writing client consultancy charters around sort of respect and uh, and, and things like that to really going through all of our suppliers from our recruiters yeah. um, to who we buy lunch from when we're hosting in the office and things like that, and really looking at every way we can we can sort of drive better inclusion you know we won't work with a with a recruiter that won't commit to um diverse shortlists and won't um provide their their policies and some examples of of, of, of where of how they've been working mm. um but it was amazing the pushback we got because we were quite early like Push it was a, from, from from recruiters well if you want a diverse if you want a diverse shortlist then you just won't get a shortlist yeah it'll be a very short list they've been slow to change I, I understand it. You know, that recruitment is a not, not difficult. Not all recruiters, no, right, no, no not at all, not at all. When we've sure. we've had some that we work with for a long time, who were, were just brilliant, and when mm -hmm. this is going to be really hard, but I totally agree with it, yeah. and we are we are totally on board. Sure. Um, but you know, recruitment is a bloody difficult job. I yeah. know we we all like to dislike them and we hate the sort of twenty <laughs> yeah, thirty target. percent um, yeah. we have to pay. But so there's loads and loads of stuff that you can do. But the between the application form and the commitments that are on this is the blueprint.co.uk, um, it it's just it's literally the blueprint. It's mm. it's 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 perfection really when it comes to trying to figure out how to move from intent to execution. Mm. You're now in a position where I suppose you can offer some advice to agencies that were like yours 15 years ago. Yeah, um, I mean. Let's be polite and describe it as intentional experimentation. Um, so we've had some sort of hits and we've had some misses in terms of different things that we've tried to do. Um, the misses, let's start with, um, Aperture, a B2B Insights um, consultancy, started, launched in 2016, 2017, yeah. real need in the market, real desire from clients of all sizes, built a fantastic product set, 
failed to sell <laughs> pretty much anything for about 12 months. Um, Important and... to make that that was definitely Rich's idea as well. <laughs> yeah. just, just, just to be absolutely clear. Yeah, we, we went from sort of minimal viable product to let's bring in someone very clever and expensive to lead this. And, and he was great, absolutely mm. brilliant. But you can't sell in a market where there is no defined budget. Right, yeah. um, you look at the B2C world and there's defined budget for insights. There's, there's literally nothing in B2B. Mm. So you were hoping to nick the budget from somewhere else which isn't much of a strategy when you're when, when you're selling that sort of thing so we we moved a bit too far away from pr i think on that on that occasion mm-hmm. and then more recently heist um which we sort of started building in 2021 and launched at the beginning of 2022 which was a consumer web3 and crypto um uh, focused uh division rapidly growing market huge amounts of uh, investment great individual became available with a real passion in that era and who we knew and trusted um and had an amazing first six months it was it was bonkers uh, the leads were coming in it was fantastic yada yada doing some really interesting work crypto winter hits um everything uh, grinds to well screeches to a halt really it wasn't so much of a grind and so we just you know pipeline disappeared and we had to pull that one pull that one pretty quickly so mm-hmm. not everything you try is going to work um, mm-hmm. but then some things do and so you look at industry analyst relations was probably the first thing we tried um so that came out of the catalyst work that we'd been doing over the years and tried to, and suddenly understood the industry analysts like Gartner and Ovum and IDC and co um, are really influential in the buying process in the B2B technology world. So mm. understanding that world better rather than treating them as journalists who just needed a bit more um, detail um, was, uh, was, was, was quite important on that. I think mm. our grounding in telecoms helped with that as well because yeah. they, they, were, they were everywhere. We were always like, dealing with industry analysts for our, our, our telecoms clients and actually we got to know an awful lot of them and that's where our analyst relations expertise started, yeah. wasn't it? And we yeah. built on top of that. Yeah, mm. we brought in um, Duncan, Duncan Chappell, who literally wrote the book on uh, industry analyst relations, I think 2018. So mm. I think we started in 2016, 2018 brought Duncan on board. It's now about 10% of our revenue today. We've got AR clients that are also PR and marketing services clients, and we've also got pure um, AR mm-hmm. clients. The US was uh, an interesting adventure. Um, as soon as, almost as soon as your piece had published on uh, the 1st of August 2013, we had a bunch of clients knocking on our door that were existing clients saying, brilliant, when are you opening in the US? Mm. Um, And our sort of response for a couple of years was, when you lend us $6 million, because fundamentally I think that's what it's going to take us to build something similar to CC Group in the the US. Um, But then, you know, time goes on and virtual agencies become normal. And so we brought on board a former client. She went out there and built a network of um of of doers really because i think sort of over the over the past however many years a lot of the u.s agencies we've had cause to work with because of through shared clients really good at the strategy side of things but not so good at the execution which is why you end up in this sort of 18 month cycle of renewal um in the u.s market at least that's what we were seeing Mm. so our brief really was can you go and find us some doers we want media hounds we want great content people etc etc and to be fair in the early days we probably 
the pendulum swung too far to execution and now we're bringing on board and we brought on board a lot more sort of strategically um, oriented individuals. But there's an enormous pool of people out there that just want to do media relations and mm. just want to do content. And it seems crazy not to align those guys with sort of teams in the uh, in the UK that can then serve clients in Europe and uh, and the US as well. And that's sort of about 12% of our, of our revenues now. And then... I guess really the latest thing um, is marketing services. So do you acquire an agency? Do you try and build out from within? Do you bring in someone strong to sort of build a proposition around? We brought Dan Miles in uh, 2021, launched it in 2022. And we're just sort of on our way to become an integrated agency. Um, almost sort of, you know, there's a bit of osmosis and there's a bit of an intentional hiring and, and building out that capability as well. So I think a lot of it's sort of, you've got to be prepared to try different things. Um, and I think if there's advice, then test it properly. Mm. <laughs> Don't jump too quickly. Um, yeah. Develop models with low financial exposure um, and manage it closely. And then don't be afraid to either pause or delete um, if it's not working, um, learn and learn and move on. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of that's been in, that's been important. Yeah, yeah I, th I think you've got to learn to get out of people's ways as well, because I think that there's this mentality, particularly if you're a, an owner of an agency that's worked and built something for a considerably long time. It's very difficult to learn how to do other things and not just kind of focus on what you've done for the last you know, 15, 20 years. And I think. Our structure with our different you know, vertical focuses that Rich mentioned and then having a horizontal offer in terms of marketing services and analyst relations means that we have been able to literally give parts of the business to different individuals and say, this is you, build this business within our business and just tell us what you need. That way you're kind of there to support entrepreneurial people to go away and do a great job. Um, and and they are obviously you know, remunerated based on the success that they bring to the bring to the company and the model works really really well um, and it means that you have got um, you know that's how small agencies become bigger agencies and it makes you more a lot more resilient to to downturns because you've got more expertise and more areas of the industry that means if one particular area gets a massive hit you've got enough success in other parts of the business which means you can just yeah. uh, ride you know ride through the tough times um, and I think that that that's that's kind of always happened without you know, without a lot of the success is down to the work of so many other people, you know, mm. and that's, uh, I think that's the mark of any great business really is to have that, have that recognition of where the talent is going to come from. Like, um, you know, Tim, you know, did with, with us two about, you know, 20 years ago, it's about acknowledging where the next generation of stars are coming from. And we've got a really great track record within the business of recognizing those stars. We've got people that are mm. running parts of our business now that joined us straight from university. Yeah. You know, and we've, you know, some of the, the, the the biggest parts of our business are literally run uh, by people that have never worked anywhere else yeah. and, and that we hired you know in the yeah. latest Paul and Rich iteration of the business and that's that's something that we can reflect on really really proudly because yeah. I, I love the fact that you know we are kind of building a legacy and we're giving all of these future stars an opportunity to shine and uh, yeah they, they just continue to surprise us every single day yeah good advice and we'll we'll end with the big question, which is, Paul, how do you get all the work done? <laughs> Rich is out of the office at all these conferences and things. That's always been that. That's always been a working relationship. You've probably noticed that Rich likes the chit chats, right? And he's always been the kind of front of house guy, as the rest of the PR industry will attest to. But um, actually, sometimes it's quite fun just kind of 
taking all of the hyperbole and turning it into kind of into money and turning it into value you know well it works i guess yeah well, every everybody needs a foil right and in mm. rich's case everyone needs a filter <laughs> <laughs> thanks mate excellent we'll end on that note rich and paul um yeah it's great talking to you and good luck with the next 15 years or however long it is thanks, thanks very much for cheers man. A lot. bye You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.